Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mary Ziegler and Sarah Esker, thank you so much for joining us at Intelligence Squared. It's great to have you. Thanks for having us. Pumped to be here. And this is a conversation in our Agree to Disagree series. And, and that's where at Intelligence Square we, we aim for conversations that really do allow for nuance and also the possibility that our two guests may actually agree on a number of things. But we choose to start out focusing uh, on where your positions are in disagreement. We really want to understand your thinking on these things. And in this case, that starting point is on the fundamental question that's been with us really for decades, but is now totally soared again to the top of the national consciousness, beginning with the leak of the decade, maybe the leak of the century, Justice Samuel Alito's draft opinion, overturning Roe. A majority opinion, meaning that his side would have the votes to overturn the landmark 1973 decision that guaranteed women the right to an abortion. And what about that judgment? Is it right to end Roe? That is our starting question. And Mary Ziegler, I believe your position is that the answer on the whole is no, that Roe should not be overturned. Am I right about that? I think you are. And I I think especially not in this way. This feels kind of rushed. Justice Alito, for example, says not only is the reasoning of Roe um, hopelessly wrong. He compares it to the decision, um, a decision upholding racial segregation. Um, but uh, arguments, for example, that abortion violates the Equal Protection Clause are wrong. And he disposes of those arguments in pretty short order by ironically invoking precedent, which, of course, the, the draft opinion dismantles. Um, and so I, if, if there is an opinion that could convince me that Roe was wrongly decided and there is no right to abortion in the Constitution, this draft doesn't do that, especially on the front of the, the connection between um, discrimination on the basis of pregnancy, which is something that I think both pro-life and pro-choice Americans have been concerned about, and the Constitution. Um, I, I don't think the draft takes that seriously, um, and I'm not convinced by it. Okay. And Sarah Isker, I know that your position on this is yes, that it is right to end Roe. And in some ways, Roe was already overturned in Casey just 20 years after it was decided. The Casey Supreme Court said that Roe, they were upholding the technical part of a constitutional right to abortion under stare decisis because they didn't want to undermine the institution of the Supreme Court by reversing a previous decision. But in terms of the legal underpinnings of Roe, they could not support that. Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that it was a breathtaking decision and that doctrinal limbs too swiftly shaped, experience teaches, may prove unstable, as Roe in fact did. I think there are issues with the Alito opinion, but when it comes to when we should overturn precedent, I think that the the pro-choice community, when I, I don't love that term, so I'm going to use it um, and try to define it when I do here, the pro-choice community has a very good political argument to make, but not a great legal argument to make in defending Roe. For each of you, was it your sense when the leak happened? And when you read Justice Alito's argument that you were, in fact, seeing the future, this was a very clear crystal ball and that the court would overturn Roe, period. Mary? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I didn't think that that was in question once Justice Kavanaugh and Barrett joined the court. I didn't I certainly didn't think that was in question after oral argument in December. And so the the simple fact of the court overturning Roe doesn't surprise me. Um, I've been a little surprised by the timing. I was a little surprised by the tone of the opinion. I was surprised by some of the arguments in the opinion, but I thought it was pretty much inevitable with this composition that we see in the court um, that that it would just be a matter of time until Rose overturned. What about you, Sarah? So before the argument happened, I actually thought that they would narrow Casey, uphold the Mississippi law, but not touch Roe or Casey. After the argument, I agree with Mary. I thought that um, Roe and Casey were very much on the table. But what I was surprised about, and I think that Mary and I agree on this, was the tone of the Alito opinion and that Alito got assigned the opinion in the first place. I thought after the argument, 
especially Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, had made such a point about this simply returning to the political sphere. I thought that Alito's opinion went much further in talking about abortion itself and the historical uh, precedents around you know, originalism and the original public understanding at the time of the founding and the 14th Amendment. Uh, so I was surprised he had the opinion and I was surprised at some of what was in the opinion and some of what wasn't in the opinion. So Mary, um, Justice Alito is making it clear that on the face of it, he is not trying to change policy. He is he is trying to fix what he thinks was a an episode of bad decision-making and bad reasoning by the court 50 years ago. He makes the argument that the right to abortion, just it's not in the text. It's also not reasonably implied. And he takes down the whole notion that it originally supported um, accepting that there was a right to an abortion 50 years ago, that the notion of there being a right to privacy implied in the Constitution. And that's a terrible idea, he's saying. I, I, I'd be curious to see your response to that. Is he right or wrong about that? Well, I, th- I think that um, obviously the idea of a jurisprudence of original intent, where we look to the the kind of the original public meaning of the Constitution has some obvious political appeal because there have to be some constraints on judges. But I think there's something equally disturbing about saying that whether there is a right that primarily applies to women, although it applies to other people who can get pregnant, that the existence of that right would be determined by the beliefs of people at a time when women couldn't vote is not attractive. Um, And I think there's also a kind of interesting kind of Gymnastics, the, the draft has to perform about explaining, one, that as Brett Kavanaugh put it at oral argument, the Constitution is neutral. This is an issue that's going back to the states. And two, uh, that this is not going to go beyond the right to abortion, because a lot of Justice Alito's reasoning about what the meaning of the 14th Amendment would have been understood to be at the time it was written would apply to a lot of other um, things too, like same-sex intimacy, which was criminalized, or interracial marriage, which was criminalized. There may be lots of political reasons the court wouldn't take up those cases. There may be political reasons red states don't criminalize any of those things, but the reasoning seems to be there. Justice Alito's answer is to say, well, abortion is different because abortion is the taking of a fetal life, and fetal life, or the life of an unborn child, as he sometimes says in the opinion, um, has special value. Can I ju- can I jump in just on 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 the point that I started with? He he basically makes the argument that that Roe was wrong because it created a right that doesn't exist uh, in mm-hmm. in the Constitution. And I'd just like you to take us back to the reasoning in in 1973, and and talk through your position of about whether he has a point or or is he overstating the case. Well, I think he's overstating the case because it's a case that could be made against the, the entirety of privacy jurisprudence, as you suggest. So at the time Roe came down, um, as you know, Roe did not suggest that there was a right to abortion in the text of the Constitution. And Roe didn't particularly focus on the original public meaning of the 14th Amendment either. Much of Roe was built on precedent, um, on an extension of what the court saw as other precedents on marriage, on contraception on parenting, on the right to procreate rather than being sterilized. And I think Justice Alito's argument that that privacy right is unconvincing because it lacks a historical pedigree and because it lacks a textual foundation is an argument that can be applied to other privacy rights and, in fact, has often been applied to other privacy rights. So I think the idea that we have no privacy rights, that there are no implied rights that exist beyond those that would have been authorized by the small group of people in power in the 19th century is is not one I think many people would, would want to pursue in our constitutional tradition. Sarah, I want to put the same question to you. Alito's take on the right to privacy, his extreme skepticism about it, almost, you know, you, you mentioned the tone of the of the draft. It's almost almost snarky uh, in, in several areas. And one of them is when he's talking about the construction of this right of privacy in, uh, in 1973 as a basis for justifying a right to abortion. Again, he's, he's basically saying it's bogus. It's not there. It's made up. What's your take on that? So there's a few different directions to take this, and I want to try to, to give each part of Mary's argument serious consideration. So first, there's the argument itself about Roe. Did Roe have the law correct? And look, I just don't think there's a lot of legal scholars out there who are willing to argue that Roe was a good legal opinion, even if they agree with the outcome as a policy matter, even if they agree with the outcome as a legal matter in many cases, that Roe itself, um, uh, as Lawrence 
tribe wrote at one point. Um, one of the most curious things about Roe is that behind its own verbal smokescreen, the substantive judgment on which it rests is nowhere to be found. Uh, so I think that Roe itself is a problem. And I think maybe even for the rest of this conversation with Mary, maybe we should separate out Roe and whether it is still good as a legal precedent from the unenumerated right to an abortion, which is really the argument that survives to this day from Roe. But the Roe point gets to stare decisis and when precedent should be overturned and the factors that Justice Alito uses to say why Roe itself is not worth keeping. And that's when he compares it to Plessy, uh, the case that held separate but equal was constitutional that was then overturned by Brown v. Board of Education. I think that folks arguing that Roe is an important precedent can't come up with a way to distinguish if Roe has to stay, why Plessy didn't have to stay. And this was a problem that came up throughout oral argument. It's a problem throughout the Supreme Court's history, why some precedents are bad enough to overturn and some aren't. When we think about um, uh, gay marriage and rights to privacy in your own bedroom, those were all overturning precedent. Lawrence overturns Bowers. Um, And again, in order to say that Roe can't be overturned for that reason, you have to be able to distinguish why Plessy was different, why Bowers was different. And I haven't seen a a good argument for that yet. Now, Mary made several other good points. Um, On the right to privacy and the unenumerated rights in the Constitution. So first, obviously nowhere in the Constitution does it say there's a right to privacy, but that's talking about enumerated rights. There's unenumerated penumbras, as the Supreme Court has said. Uh, This was one of the arguments against having a Bill of Rights, this idea that if we list out our rights, that somehow those will become finite, that that will be our only rights. And we were assured by our founders that, no, no, this is just listing out some of them, but there's plenty of other rights that exist. They're constitutional, fundamental rights, and we're just not going to list them all here. So we know that there are unenumerated rights, and I don't like it when the pro-life side of this argument, the anti-Roe side says, well, literally the word abortion isn't in the Constitution because that's not the argument. For instance, um, a right to travel, a right to raise your children uh, by sending them, educating them the way you want, sending them to a school that teaches in a certain language, um, things like that have been found by the Supreme Court to be unenumerated fundamental constitutional rights. The right to privacy I think Justice Alito breaks this up in his draft opinion in in a helpful way. He says there's this right to privacy of like your your documents, your personal things, a tangible right to privacy. And he's like, that is very clearly an unenumerated right with history and tradition. But then there's this other right to privacy that the Supreme Court starts to recognize in the 60s. Um, And some of the problem with Roe is that it comes at the end of a decade of this idea of the Supreme Court as platonic guardians almost, these nine people just determining what's best without really tying things to any constitutional or judicial philosophy. And a big difference that we have now is that even the liberal justices on the Supreme Court across the spectrum all want to have judges not as legislatures, but as uh, having a judicial philosophy that is consistent over time on different issues. And the problem it's always been Roe in that. And Justice Alito, I think, makes that point well when he talks about uh, the interest as, with Roe as a precedent on the effects that Roe has had in other areas of the law where the court has had to bend over backwards to try to keep Roe and its sort of distortionary effects on other What's, a, what's an example of that? Well, for instance, Justice Alito gives this example as well uh, on free speech, for instance. So there's a case called Hill versus Colorado that was decided in 2000 about um, having a, a like no speech zone around abortion clinics. And it was only about people protesting abortion. Well, that under any other circumstance would be a content-based restriction on someone's right to speech uh, on, you know, public property, um, And in this case, the Supreme Court held, no, there was sort of a special interest in speech around abortion clinics. So that's an example of a distortionary effect that Roe and abortion has had on Supreme Court precedent that would be very different if abortion had been left to the states in 1973, which 
again, as Justice Ginsburg pointed out, um, you know, 20 years ago, was already moving towards a more liberalizing direction. And what Roe did was end that and create the culture of war that we've had for the last 50 years. Can I say a couple of things? I just, there's some really interesting points Sarah raised. So I just Go for it, Mary, please. Sure. So, I mean, one thing I found unconvincing. So one point, so there's the, the question of, you know, was Roe a super persuasive opinion in its original form? And I, I mean, I think Sarah and I agree that the answer to that is no. There's the separate question of, of just sort of stare decisis. Is Roe really, you know... Can, can you take a moment just for the lay, lay listener, stare decisis, yeah, explain that, the term? There's a body of rules that determine when we revisit precedent. And Justice Alito's answer is this is a slam dunk. This is as bad as a decision upholding racial segregation. And part of his reasoning is that... Can, 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 I, can I jump in to just slow sure. it down for the, for the, oh, yeah. for the f- college freshman level listener? The, that stare decisis is, is the notion that once the court makes a decision, that it takes uh, that, that precedent should have enormous power and, uh, and, and influence and endurance uh, and that reversing it, overturning it should be done only for most the most extremely justifiable reasons. But even, the, for the most part... Even if we think the opinion is wrong. That's an important part of stare decisis. Right, exactly. And we don't and so, overturn the precedent even if we think it might be incorrect. Okay, right. so what's and in so, play here is that is that Roe versus Wade has been... was was has has been in place for 50 years. And so to be to reverse it now is a big deal. So, right. So it's go, not just a question of would I have written the Roe v. Wade opinion the way Harry Blackman did. So I think we've been fo- I've been focusing so far on, on that piece of it. Like, is there a good constitutional foundation for abortion rights? But I think if you're thinking about overruling a case, the court also looks at other factors like is Roe unworkable? Have people relied on it? And I think there the, the draft is much less convincing. So Justice Alito's argument that Roe is unworkable it sort of boils down to two things, right? He says, first, the Supreme Court has altered Roe, and that suggests it's unworkable. I mean, I would submit to you that anytime something is extremely controversial and courts' compositions change, it's quite likely that courts are going to tinker with whatever that is um, as the justices rethink it. It's going to be hard to imagine other culture war issues that might not be unworkable, too. Another argument is essentially this is a balancing test, and balancing tests generate unpredictable results. But there are lots of balancing tests in constitutional law. There are balancing tests that the Roberts Court has designed around voting rights. Are all of those unworkable? So I'm, I'm not sure if this is the court singling out Roe because it doesn't like it or if it's making a case that really can be applied across the board. On reliance, Justice Alito says, well... You need, you need, to, explain, you need to explain yeah. reliance. Sure, okay. sorry. So, so I, again, I, I, let me take a crack at it. Uh, well, I, I can do it. I'm, I'm happy to slow it down. Um, <laughs> okay, so thanks. one factor is reliance. The idea is that when people structure their lives around the rules as they currently are, it's a big deal for the court to change those rules, that that may do real damage in people's lives. And that because they're been, counting on the because they're counting on them being there. They're counting exactly. on it. That's the way it's always been. It should stay that way. And I've organized my life around that. And I don't want things to change all of a sudden. Exactly. And that had been one of the main arguments in Casey for keeping Roe, essentially that people had planned their lives um, around the idea that if they got pregnant, they wouldn't have to disrupt a career or an education to have an abortion. And this was a kind of key part of the Casey opinion. Groups on both sides of the abortion issue saw it that way. Justice Alito says, essentially, if anyone had ever needed abortion, they don't need it anymore. Adoption is easier and more common now. There's sort of less stigma around unwed parenthood. And I I found that argument unconvincing for a few reasons. I mean, first, pregnancy hasn't changed, um, especially for people in the parts of the country that are the most likely to ban abortion. Unfortunately, those places have high rates of maternal mortality for people of color. And it's it's sort of odd to me to dismiss those concerns when the court recognizes concerns about bodily integrity in other contexts. Um, and then I'm, I'm not sure without more evidence that the reality of parenting has changed. I, I don't think this is something that's exciting for progressives or conservatives, but we've seen during the pandemic how difficult the, the kind of gendered share of labor has been particularly for cisgendered women. Um, I think we've seen that adoption is not a sort of easy process emotionally for people who've carried a pregnancy to term. And so the idea that we can kind of easily dismiss these reliance interests in the space of a few paragraphs, um, as much as I think, you know, there are people who 
are adoptive parents, that's to be celebrated? Is that an answer to the reliance argument as simply as Alito suggests it is? I'm not sure. And then the other point I wanted to address that Sarah made, um, this is probably the one I feel the most strongly about because I've written probably four books about this, the idea that we should overrule Roe largely because, or heavily because Roe created our culture wars, is something Alito says in an opinion that does a lot of work with history, cites a lot of historical sources. On that argument, he cites a dissent by Antonin Scalia. He doesn't engage with any of the historical literature that suggests that, unsurprisingly, our conflict on abortion was polarized before Roe because people hold fundamentally different beliefs about when life begins, about gender roles, about faith. The Supreme Court didn't create the abortion conflict. And the abortion conflict, much to my chagrin, has been polarized for reasons well beyond Roe. Roe had a part in it, but if the court is going to kind of do a deep dive into history, it should acknowledge that portraying Roe as the kind of only villain in all the culture wars absolves many other people of responsibility for the mess we find ourselves in and ignores a pretty extensive literature on how the abortion debate got polarized across a number of disciplines that Justice Alito doesn't engage with at all. So, Mary, um, Justice Alito argued that if if you're going to create a right that's not explicitly mentioned in mm-hmm. the Constitution, one of these unenumerated rights, as you've been describing them, that they that those rights need to be sort of already out there and recognized. I think he said they need to be deeply rooted in the history and traditions of the United States. Mm-hmm. And on that count, he says, the claim for a right to abortion falls short because he lays out this history that abortion was was unacceptable and and largely a crime going back sort of forever. And I I wanted Mm -hmm. you to take on that point and and, and tell us if if you find it persuasive or not. Well, so this is a complicated point, right? I think if you ask me as a historian, was abortion a crime or was abortion accepted or not? My answer would be the standard historian answer of it's complicated, right? I think Justice Alito's argument is sort of, it, it feels kind of a little bit slanted. It sort of, it ignores the fact that People, I think, held differing views on whether abortion was a crime much more than the draft suggests until the late 19th century. In the late 19th century and even the early 19th century, there was more of a divide about when abortion was a problem, whether it was a problem late in pregnancy only or early as well as late in pregnancy until quite late in the 19th century. And I think there's a a question about why abortion was being criminalized, which Justice Alito also sort of glosses over. He says, in part, which I don't think is completely wrong, it doesn't matter why states were criminalizing abortion. Um, It suggests there can be no deeply rooted right, simply if they were doing that. But then he goes on to say, um, you know, the reason that states were doing this was primarily or almost exclusively because they attached great value to life in the womb. I don't think historians would would buy that argument. It seems quite clear that, uh, and also unsurprising, that legislators and reformers pushing to criminalize abortion had good as well as bad motives, had motives that would be recognizable as well as despicable today. That's not surprising or unique to people who are opposed to abortion in the 19th century. But I think because of that, his historical account feels um, incomplete and, and, and kind of um, like as if there was sort of aiming for a means to an end. That said, I mean, it's pretty clear that no one in the 19th century thought there was a right to abortion. And it's clear that states were criminalizing abortion by the late 19th century. So from a methodological... So you're right about that. You're yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm totally comfortable. I mean, there's a lot yeah. wrong with... They were not necessarily or clearly criminalizing early abortion, um, that is much more contested. The idea that there's this unbroken tradition going back to the Middle Ages of everyone thinking abortion was a crime is, I don't think, that convincing. It's certainly contested. And the idea that we can admire folks who are criminalizing abortion for having recognizable and celebrated motives seems wrong. But the basic point that states were criminalizing abortion, that's just true. So I I think it's, it's a matter of what do you do with the history and then how how in the weeds are you willing to get if you're being honest about the role history is playing? Because I think the history is kind of uglier and more complicated than this draft suggests. And if you were really going to grab, if history and tradition is your like lodestar, then I would, I would suggest, you know, that this opinion isn't really trying to get into the weeds with what history and tradition tell us. It's giving us a sort of clean and tidy, not entirely representative vision, but it's not entirely wrong either in terms of the idea that, you know, there wasn't a big, there was no abortion rights movement in the 19th century um, and states were criminalizing abortion. These things are not contested. Sarah, you want to take on that question as well? 
Yeah. So I think I agree with almost everything Mary just said, especially the part where even if the history is contested on the fringes, and those fringes might be quite long, by the way, I don't mean to suggest they're only on the outside um, or unimportant, that there's remains the question of what do you do with that? So if we agree that at least some abortions um, were criminalized at the founding, therefore, there was no history and tradition of there being an unenumerated right to an abortion. Um, Does that mean that we can't find one now? And this goes to kind of the heart of originalism, right? This idea that you interpret current law and current lawsuits um, to look at what the original public understanding was at the time that that language was adopted, whether it's the Constitution or a statute. And I want to point out some problems. One, as Mary's already alluded to, this idea that women weren't allowed to vote back then, so these state laws, they weren't a part of. And if you think about it from the context of, for instance, interracial marriage, when Loving v. Virginia, which held that there was a constitutional right to marry someone regardless of their race, was decided, uh, the court didn't look back to determine whether it was legal at the time of the founding. Of course it wasn't. Um, and I think there's a similar argument to be made here about the role of women. The problem is that the solution to that is not to have the Supreme Court say, so therefore we decided there should have been or there would have been if women had the right to vote or had more political power at the time of the founding, so we're going to create that now. Instead, the answer is to amend our Constitution, which of course was done with the 13th and 14th Amendment. The 13th Amendment ended slavery. The 14th Amendment was meant to end the badges of servitude, um, you know, things that were around slavery due to someone's race. That's where we get the um, Equal Protection Clause, for instance. And then, of course, we have the 19th Amendment, which holds that women have the right to vote. Well, here's the problem. If the 14th Amendment encompasses all of the basic and fundamental constitutional rights that one's supposed to have under the Equal Protection Clause, then why was the 19th Amendment necessary? I mean, I don't like it. I think that actually it shouldn't have been necessary that women had the right to vote after the 14th Amendment, but they didn't. Uh, Because of that, I think that when you think about how we should solve these problems at a legal standpoint, if we're not going to do it from a political standpoint, the answer is to amend the Constitution. But that's incredibly hard to do. When uh, Justice Scalia was asked before he died, uh, what would be the most important change to our Constitution? Or what was the amendment that he supported making to the Constitution? He said, we should amend the Constitution to make amending the Constitution easier for exactly some of these reasons. Because I don't know that there's a good way to interpret the Constitution without looking to how people understood those words at the time. Even Justice Kagan has said, we're all originalists now. Uh, And in light of that, then you end up with problems like Row. What do you do with something that's about gender, about women when they didn't have that political power at the time that we're looking back at the language or at the original understanding? So if abortion was criminalized at the time of the founding, it's not an enumerated right. And if it's not an enumerated right, an unenumerated right, I apologize, an unenumerated right, one that's not spelled out in the Constitution, but is nevertheless there, then Roe doesn't really have any legal leg to stand on. And if that's the case, then either we have to leave it to the legislative branches that are now politically representative. You know, more women voted in Mississippi than men in the last election. This is the state that was at issue in this case, Dobbs, which of course, this is the draft opinion for Dobbs still. That's a 15-week ban on abortion. And so we can either leave it to the political branches or we can amend our constitution to make clear that it's an enumerated right. Okay, Mary, so Sarah has touched on, I would say, the the major thrust of Alito's argument that that regulating abortion is not the court's business, that this is making law, law should be made by the legislatures, that that by overturning uh, Roe, the decision-making goes back to the legislatures where the the people, in theory, have a say through elections. And that's that's the biggest argument that he's making. In addition to taking down Roe, he's, his recommendation for where this should be is with the state legislatures or Congress. I'd like you to take that on. 
I guess I'm, I'm a little concerned about. So the first thing I think about that is that it, it doesn't do justice to the fact that the court should be reluctant to overturn precedents, especially when people rely on them in structuring their lives. And Justice Alito somehow believes that if Roe is overturned, that's not going to actually affect significant reliance interests, which I think is sort of a little bit hard to credit. The idea that people will not be affected if in half the country um, abortion is criminalized, that people will not be affected if there are intense interstate battles about whether people can travel to other states or perform abortions. When people travel to other states, I think so there's the question of whether this is a draft that takes precedent seriously. And I'm not, I'm not convinced that it is. I'm, I'm also not convinced that this is an issue that can be returned to the people when we're thinking about equal protection, because the Equal Protection Clause prohibits certain forms of discrimination, and it, it is in the text of the Constitution. Um, we know that at the time the 14th Amendment was written, uh, the framers of the 14th Amendment were concerned about slavery and what slavery meant for reproduction, um, especially people who were forced to have children, um, forced to give up their children, that the re reproduction of, of women of color had been entirely controlled by people who purported to own them. And some of those ideas about race and, and also, I think, about sex are, are part of our tradition in equal protection law. And the draft opinion doesn't really take those ideas seriously. Essentially, Justice Alito says, well, we have some precedents that make clear that, you know, you can't talk about pregnancy discrimination as sex discrimination. So that's the end of the discussion. It goes back to the states. And I don't think that's enough of an argument to dispense with that claim. But to zero in on, on giving it to the legislatures, are you saying that you're uncomfortable with legislatures having this being in their arena, solely in their arena? Well, I'm, I'm uncomfortable because I don't know if it's constitutionally permissible. I'm uncomfortable because I think it's going to land us in a hotter mess politically. And I'm also skeptical that that's where this is going to stay, because, of course, pro-life Americans have submitted briefs to the court in this case and are preparing to argue in other cases that abortion is unconstitutional as a matter of original public meaning because a fetus or unborn child is a rights-holding person under the 14th Amendment. Um, I don't know if there will be concurring opinions in this case that invite that argument further. I think you can sort of read some aspects of Justice Alito's draft as inviting that argument. So I'm, I'm not even really fully convinced that this would stay in the states or that some of the justices believe that it should stay in the states. So I guess I'm, I'm not convinced it should be there because of the equal protection argument. And I'm not convinced it will stay there because I, I don't believe that people who are pro-life really want it to stay in the states any more than people who support abortion rights do. Sarah, do you, do you think this issue should be settled by the states in the states in their legislatures with their lawmakers elected by the people? Yes. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, there's there are many things most things that should be decided democratically, you know, for it's an odd, um, <laughs> it's an odd contradiction, frankly, on both sides of this argument, as we think about, for instance, the voting rights argument, that it is largely the left that believes in larger democratization of our voting, voting rights for felons, for instance, or for um, people without citizenship. And yet it's also the left that doesn't want issues like this to be decided democratically. And by the way, the exact opposite on the right, I might add. Uh, so this isn't, uh, this isn't just one side's hypocrisy. Um, but I think we run into a problem as a society when we keep saying that everything, everything is so important, it must be decided by the courts instead of by democracy, by a Republican form of government. Because that sort of is the end of self-government, if you follow that to its logical conclusion, right? The vast majority of things are supposed to be decided through compromise, through hard debates, through culture wars, which are nothing new to our generation, um, and by convincing people and persuading people. But if everything is an existential threat to, to rights, to our way of life, to a reliance interest, and then it's all decided by nine people, it's no wonder that the Supreme Court has become such a political issue. When I think of presidential campaigns, the Supreme Court now being mentioned way more than it ever was before. Uh, you know, even in my lifetime, there were justices confirmed unanimously. Um, 
in the last hundred years, there were justices confirmed the same day that they were nominated to the court. That's unthinkable at this point. And I think that's largely why, because we've stopped legislating, we've stopped compromising, and instead said everything is an issue to be decided in a court by these nine people. And that's just not the way that our Constitution was set up to function, and it won't function that way for very long. Okay, Mary, some strong pushback, I think I heard from Sarah there. I'm I'm not sure I disagree with Sarah on some of that. I don't really know if this Supreme Court is a body that's interested in returning all of those issues to to, to democracy either. This is a court that's, I think, hearing major cases that will change the shape of the administrative state and likely um, hold that affirmative action programs and universities are unconstitutional and hold that gun rights need to be radically expanded. So this does not feel like a court that, with, with some exceptions like abortion, may really even be interested in diminishing its own power. But I agree that there's a lot of dysfunction in this country that has led us to these sort of winner-take-all battles in the court, and that that is dysfunctional. So again, if, if it were me in 1973, I may not have decided Roe the way it was decided. I would have preferred things to be done through legislatures. I think I would prefer if, if you know, somebody made me queen for the day to have something like a direct plebiscite like we saw in Ireland to take this issue not even to to representatives, but to take this issue directly to the people because our legislative process at the state and federal level has become dysfunctional in ways that I would hope the left and right would both bemoan. So I, I I don't think Sarah's wrong that we would be better served if more of our issues were resolved through the democratic process. But I think this Supreme Court is singling out Roe in a way I'm not entirely sure will last. I, I think the court may take up the abortion issue again in a, ver- a variety of ways, but also is not kind of sticking to that principle when there are pre- other th- rights it wants to expand, other issues it wants to take out of the democratic process. Fundamentally, Sarah, does does uh, the, the overruling of Roe represent a setback for the rights of women in America? No, I don't think it's setting back women's rights because I don't think Roe really was ever followed in the first place. Roe shut down a conversation about abortion, um, about when life not begins, because that's not really a legal question. That's a moral question. The legal question is when does that life have a cognizable interest that's recognized by law? So for instance, if you kill a pregnant woman um, and she's you know 37 weeks pregnant, in many states you can get charged with the homicide of the baby as well. That's a legal question. There are all sorts of things in our society that are morally wrong that we haven't criminalized. And I think that's an important thing to think about when we talk about abortion. You can think something is morally wrong for yourself, for your family, for your friends, for everyone, but the law doesn't come into that. Cutting people off on the freeway, for instance. Morally, I mean, life prison, right? But we don't legalize against cutting people off. And at the far other end of the spectrum might be abortion. And so when we think about women's rights, Justice Alito does make the point that this isn't like Loving v. Virginia, the case about interracial marriage, or Obergefell, the case about gay marriage, because it's not two consenting adults we're talking about. It's one person and another potential person. And that's what he says makes Roe different. And uh, to quote, he says, our conclusion that the Constitution does not confer such a right to abortion does not undermine those cases in any way, which interestingly broadens rights, right? uh, One of the most conservative justices on the Supreme Court recognizing those cases as super precedent, if you will, and the legal theory that they were based on, this idea of something called substantive due process. So when you think of due process, you may think of um, the rights at your trial, for instance. That would be the process you are due in the legal system. But the courts have created something called substantive due process, which is something more substantive, like the right to marry who you want to marry. Conservatives have always been deeply uncomfortable. They don't think there's a textualist basis for substantive due process. Um, And here's Justice Alito recognizing substantive due process and saying that it doesn't undermine, that this opinion, draft opinion, would not undermine those cases in any way. So I think that to narrowly focus on just women's rights is probably a mistake given 
what this draft opinion could mean overall right. to the rights framework. Let me take the same question then uh, back to Mary. Mary, the, the question very specifically, will overturning Roe be a setback for the rights of women in America? I think so. And I think especially the way the court kind of breezily dismisses arguments that there's no connection between discriminating against someone on the basis of pregnancy and discriminating against someone on the basis of sex, that's going to have reverberations even beyond abortion. The fact that the court thinks there's no problem for women to just give up children for adoption or be pregnant, that that's not really even worthy of the court's consideration. I mean, the fact that the court thinks that rights should be determined exclusively by the people by people at a time when women couldn't vote. I mean, it's hard to imagine that won't be a setback for women. I'm not a sociologist, so I'm not sure how in the real world this will play out, either in terms of how effectively states will be able to stop people from having abortions or what that will mean for women's lives and opportunities. But this reads like an opinion by a court that's not particularly concerned about or at least a draft that isn't particularly concerned about those arguments or those concerns, and that uh, that worries me. Let's talk a little bit about implications of of the overturning of Roe. Um, what, what's going to happen out there in the country, Mary? You track this very closely as an historian of abortion rights, and there are uh, more than 20 states that have laws on the book that I think are described as either zombie laws or laws that can be triggered. That the day that the the day that the uh, decision comes down, these laws begin, a process begins where these laws go into effect. And what's going to, what is it going to be like out there? Well, I I think some of that remains to be determined. I mean, so far the track that states have been on um, that are going to ban abortion is that the strategy is going to be to criminalize doctors and maybe also to punish people who help uh, people seeking abortions, which would include you know, abortion funds maybe include partners or other people who help pay for or get people to abortions. Um, We're starting to see Louisiana has a bill now that's saying that they want to punish um, patients or women too. So it's, I think there's going to be a live debate in a lot of states about what it means to be pro-life, right? Does it primarily mean that you want to punish people for having abortions or is, is there more to it? And is punishing people for having abortions something, or even punishing people for for performing abortions, is that really what the movement, where the movement starts and stops? I think there's a little bit, there's a debate, I think, about that. I think that, I don't know, the pro-life movement is a big, diverse movement with people with a variety of ideas about what the movement stands for. But in the short term, I think we're going to see criminalization. And I think then we're going to see a kind of arms race uh, between pro-choice groups that are going to try to facilitate access for people in these red states to abortion, probably in blue states, and red states then trying to shut those avenues of access down, particularly when it comes to medication abortion. And what saddens me about that as someone who studied movements on both sides of the debate is that there there are people who are pro-choice and pro-life who are compassionate, who care about mothers who care about pregnant people. And it it doesn't seem that those concerns are really front and center um, for red states, even though there are pro-life people who care about those things. So I I would hope that there are more debates about why people sometimes are having abortions, what could be done about that, instead of simply debates about um, incarcerating people, which I think is a country we've become concerned about incarcerating lots of people um, the end of Roe could mean incarcerating lots more people. And I would hope as a country in a post-Roe America, we could do better than that. Sarah, there are red states out there that have laws in the books ready to go, ready to slip into action that um, are, are, are rather, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm not trying to say draconian because I don't want to weigh it. Terrible? But rather, sloppy? The, well, they, they, the, the point I want to get to is that they don't make exceptions for some of them don't make exceptions for instances of rape and incest. And I'm, and, and the, 10, five, 10 years ago, that was considered even by many people in the movement to be an extreme position. And now those laws are standing by ready to go. And I'm wondering, do they really, do, do they intend those laws to become law or were those more uh, declarations and, and uh, you know, position papers uh, for rhetorical purposes? Are they going to have to rewrite those laws? Is that what you think is going to happen or are they going to let them stand? So I think Roe had many ill effects on our politics, but one of its illest effects is that it has allowed both sides of the political debate to hide behind Roe, say whatever they want, 
and cater to a base that's maybe single issue voters without having to worry about the actual legal effects of laws they're putting into place. So for instance, on the left, uh, Elizabeth Warren just today said that um, she can't name a single limit that she would put on abortion. Uh, In February, Chuck Schumer brought to a vote in the Senate a bill that had no limits um, for abortion. So in theory, a woman could choose an elective abortion at 39 weeks um, under a federal law like that, which I don't think most Americans would feel comfortable with. And again, certainly if you look at our, um, you know, similar Western democracies in Europe, they all have very similar, actually, laws around abortion um, that are compromises, compromises that I imagine would be pretty close to what we'd compromise as a country here if there were actually a functioning legislative branch. Um, At the state level, where Republicans have a lot more control, I've seen laws that, again, were passed in this Roe era where you don't have to worry about it actually going into effect. As you said, laws that don't uh, make an exception for the life of the mother. If that law went into effect and a woman died because she was not able to um, to abort her fetus, choosing between her life and her baby's life, um, I just can't imagine the firestorm politically and how people would feel about that in the country. I've also seen laws that have passed um, that treat ectopic pregnancies as abortion, which, again, most of the true pro-life advocates who are sort of studied in pro-lifeness, a term that I'm now going to create, uh, don't even treat ectopic pregnancy as an abortion because ectopic pregnancies where the fertilized egg implants into the fallopian tube have no potential for human life. They cannot survive there. The only potential is for the death of the mother. And so if they've, and in that bill, the one in Missouri that I'm specifically thinking of, they didn't intend to do that. It was sloppily drafted, but it didn't matter that it was sloppily drafted because again, Roe was in effect. So it didn't matter. It was more of a press release than it was a real bill. Yes, these states are going to have to revisit that because politically they will not function. Um, And I think that we will see some of that tumult, especially in the 20 or so states that have nothing on the books right now, including many of the swing states that have Senate races this November, uh, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Wisconsin. But once that settles again, when you think about sort of a rights framework, I think in the long term, we will all be better off if we can get the engine of our legislative branches at the state level and at the federal level moving again where their decisions matter and have effect. Because what I think the political compromise and log rolling that will occur will create a functional system that balances a woman's right against sort of the moral inclination that we have about potential personhood um, and Both sides are going to need to figure out how to do that because neither one right now has had to do it for 50 years. Yeah, I mean, we hear Alito saying this is just about abortion and nothing else. And but I but I'm not sure how much um, how controlling that is. You know, in in the Bush v. Gore case in 2000, the justices said that their decision on that election uh, the, the, their language was it's limited to the present circumstances, meaning it's not about any other case. And and of course, Bush v. Gore got cited again and again in federal cases. In fact, in the, uh, some of the challenges to the election brought by Republicans in 2020, Bush v. Gore was cited. So it, this idea that it, that you can contain this t- this decision just to this case, I think we have to be skeptical about. But I want to ask you about the same question, Sarah. Do you think that this is the the beginning of a process for continued culture wars, um, and and um, in the sense that, as Mary said, she feels that um, overturning Roe does diminish the rights of women. I know that you disagree. Uh, is there going to be an effort that would similarly be seen to diminish the rights of, um, of, of people who want, to have, who want to marry people of the same sex, for example? So I agree entirely with Mary's legal analysis of this draft, that Justice Alito says that this uh, isn't going to touch same-sex marriage, birth control, all of those things. But the reasoning that he uses obviously would, and he was in the dissent on Obergefell, the case on same-sex marriage, saying the very same things he's saying about Roe here, right? There's no history and tradition. There's no um, uh, liberty interest. 
that was used in Obergefell. So uh, from a judicial philosophical position, um, I agree with everything Mary said. Now, from a political, and I mean uh, political meaning how the court takes cases here, I do think it would be very difficult. Um, First of all, because Obergefell is precedent, you would need to find someone to bring the case, obviously. That may not be that hard. Uh, Second, a circuit court to ignore Supreme Court precedent, forcing the Supreme Court to take the case. Otherwise, assuming the circuit court recognizes gay marriage, you'd need to find four votes of justices who want to take the case. I think it's hard to to count to four on that one of any justice who wants to revisit that issue right now. But, and this is the biggest problem for me about the Alito draft, because it doesn't have that limiting principle, and I'm not sure how it could, um, there are lots of other adjacent cases that haven't yet been decided pitting, for instance, gay marriage or LGBTQ rights against religious liberty. And that's where I think the rubber is going to hit the road where this Dobbs decision could be cited. You know, the Kim Davis example is one that never made it to the Supreme Court. But think about uh, names on birth certificates, surrogacy, all sorts of things yet to really make it through our court system. And so on this, not much of a debate between Mary and I. I think we both probably see this legally the same way. Well, we're all trying to figure out a way to talk to each other. And that's what we're here at Intelligence Squared working on all of the time. And the two of you really, really rose to the occasion and showed us that it can be done. Mary Ziegler and Sarah Esker, thank you so much for joining us in the discussion uh, about uh, the future of Roe v. Wade. And it's very, very likely overturning. I want to thank you so much for the way you did it and um, say great to have you with us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. And I'm John Donvan. We will see you next time. I want to thank you, our audience, for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared. I hope you enjoyed it just as much as I did. Intelligence Squared is a nonprofit that is generously funded by listeners like you, members of Intelligence Squared, academic institutions, and other partners, and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Clea Connor is our CEO. David Ariosto is our head of editorial. Amy Kraft is our chief of staff and head of production. Shale Mara and Marlette Sandoval are our producers. Kim Strempel is our production coordinator. Damon Whittemore is our audio producer. And Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. Our mission here at Intelligence Squared is to restore critical thinking and facts and reason and civility to American public discourse. We would love your support in that effort. Please visit www.intelligencesquaredus.org to join the debate and hear from both sides, at least both sides, of every issue. I'm John Donvan. Thanks so much for listening. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. 